love your enemies, the first will be last, turn the other cheek, don't worry about anything, deny yourself and take up your cross and rejoice when you are persecuted. We'll begin this morning with an obvious statement. Jesus taught difficult things. Scripture is filled with passages that throughout the centuries people have agonized over and debated about, wondering what Jesus was really saying in these teachings. We've engaged a number of them this summer here at College Church through the parables, and uh, I sometimes call those the riddles of Jesus, trying to figure them out is quite a feat. And I'm thankful for the teaching team this summer that has helped cast light on many of those teachings. But I'm also thankful for the reminder that it gave me that Jesus often taught in ways that didn't just hand us something to be taken at face value, but which he invites us to return to time and time again so that we might understand the richness of what he was giving to us. When I was in college, I served as a dorm floor chaplain, which basically meant it was my responsibility each week to provide the girls on my floor with a weekly devotional. And one year, as I was doing this, somebody had the great idea that we should put a drop box on the floor and invite the students to place cards in the box where they had written down scriptures that they were wrestling with or having trouble understanding or that they would like us to discuss in our weekly devotional time. I assure you that the girls on my floor did not take this assignment very seriously. And I knew I was in trouble when the first week alone, the suggestions they placed in the box included a request to discuss the story in 2 Kings where Elijah is chided by a group of school children being called the ever, ever horrible name of Baldy. So terrible that Elijah got mad and he called down a curse on the children and two bears jumped out of the forest and mauled the children to death. They wanted to talk about that. There was the person who requested to discuss the issue of the Nephilim mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, asking who were they and where did they come from? Only you Old Testament nuts are going to understand why that one was tricky. Somebody asked if we could discuss 1 Samuel 28 and the story of the witch at Endor and the curious resuscitation of Samuel. I had the privilege of hearing Phyllis Tickle speak on this text a number of years ago, and she was brilliant. But I assure you that what I could contribute to this conversation as a college sophomore was pretty minimal. The next day, somebody placed a passage saying, could you, placed a card in the box saying, could we discuss the last passage of Psalm 137? It reads, happy is the one who seizes your babies and dashes them against the rocks. And my favorite was someone asked about Jesus cursing the fig tree in Mark chapter 11. They said, why would Jesus get mad at a tree, let alone one that was only guilty of not producing fruit in its off season? Jesus taught many interesting things, many difficult things, and I can tell you that during that year, there were many times I used the line from John chapter six to explain these teachings, saying, this is difficult, not sure how we accept it or how we explain it. But in the reading that Rennie just gave to us from the Gospel of John, Jesus had in fact spoken another incredibly difficult teaching Prior to these verses, we know that Jesus had fed the 5,000 and had walked on water, which were miracles that defied anyone's imagination. And now he stood in the center of this crowd that had been following him and watching him and sizing him up, trying to determine if he could really be their awaited Messiah. And he tells a group of devout Jews that in order to gain deliverance, the very thing they were waiting for, they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. 
I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty glad that one didn't show up in the suggestion box that year. This was an incredibly difficult teaching, difficult for anyone, let alone a group of Jews who likely wondered if all of a sudden Jesus was promoting cannibalism or had just generally gone off the deep end. Think about it, just hours before, Jesus had miraculously provided bread, the sustenance and the nourishment the crowd needed by multiplying just five small barley loaves and two fish to feed them all. It had been reminiscent of when God provided manna and quail in the desert for their ancestors, the perfect satisfaction of their hunger at just the right time and in such a spectacular manner. And it's not like this was the first of Jesus' actions that displayed his miraculous ability. And so in verse 30, those following him simply asked for more, more concrete evidence of his power, another sign, another healing, another teaching or feeding, something that would continue to fuel their hope that he was the one sent to deliver them. But in his response to their request this time, Jesus seems to go where these followers aren't quite ready to turn, moving outside of the physical realm and into the, the spiritual or the mystical realm, really, asking these people to think beyond what they could see or comprehend in their earthly perspective alone. After all, as he said, those who ate the manna and the quail in the desert eventually died. And so Jesus responds to their request for the spectacular again by saying that he is the bread of life. Those who will eat his flesh and drink his blood will live forever. I don't think this is the kind of answer the crowd was bargaining for that day. N.T. Wright said that this scene, this moment with Jesus was sort of a line in the sand in his ministry. The time when Jesus began to call his followers to move beyond a one-dimensional understanding of what he was saying and doing and who he was and begin to look at things not only from an earthly perspective, but also from a kingdom perspective. I think it's almost impossible for us to understand here today just how difficult this teaching would have been for this particular group. We live on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. We know the rest of the story, and so despite our various interpretations of the Eucharist, I think we can often read over this text with perhaps less shock and awe at Jesus' bold invitation than we might have had if we were standing there that day. But whether or not this particular teaching is one that you have personally had to wrestle with, I'm guessing that there are others. Others' teachings of Christ that you find difficult specifically to reconcile with the circumstances of your life and the world around you. Cancer, infertility, unemployment, divorce, war, famine, death, these are difficult things that we face and situations that we must, must learn from each and every day in our spiritual journeys. And in these moments and these weeks and months and years when we are wrestling with such things, I think we often find ourselves like the 5,000 saying, these teachings are difficult. How do we accept them? You see, the question is not will we encounter difficult things in the Christian life, Rather, what will we do when we face such challenges? There are options, of course, and one of the reasons I love this text is because I think it models for us, the people in the text model for us what some of those options are. 
For starters, I think when we encounter a difficulty in our lives, we often just get hung up complaining about the difficult thing. We look at it, we assess and examine it from every angle, trying to figure out what all the potential ramifications of that difficult thing might be. And after we've gone through all this rigmarole, we just complain, we whine, we let God know that the situation is unfair and unjust. And we don't, we don't understand why the thing needs to have, have take place in the first place. Verse 61 tells us that Jesus was aware that his disciples were grumbling about his teaching. He heard them bantering with one another, whispering and complaining about how what he was saying didn't really make sense or even seemed heretical. But it's not that this was a surprise to Jesus. We're also told in that text that Jesus knew what was in every person's heart. And he realized that what he was saying would not be easily received by everyone who was in the crowd that day. But Jesus also knew what was yet to come. And he knew that not all who were following him outside of the synagogue at Capernaum that day would be able to continue to believe that he and his teachings were of God. And so upon hearing their grumbling, Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, does this offend you? As if to warn them that if this was troubling, this difficult teaching, the things yet to come would be even more so. I wonder how often in life when we face something difficult, we actually know what Jesus has commanded us to do, what he has said about our present situation or the way we should approach that difficulty. And instead of engaging those instructions, our response is merely to grumble and whine and complain and let God know we don't like whatever that difficult thing is. I think in those moments when we've chosen to engage that situation in this manner, the truth is we're just sort of stewing. We're not really moving ourselves forward or backward. We're just remaining stagnant in our situation. Love my neighbor? Really? But did you see what he did to me? Do you just expect me to forgive him without receiving an apology first? Wait patiently on the Lord? Sure, in normal circumstances, God, but I'm running out of time here, and I don't understand why you wouldn't want me to have a child or be cured of this illness. Am I being punished for something? These are difficult things that we face. How do we accept them? When I was entering graduate school at the University of Colorado a number of years ago, I had been given a course catalog. It was this enormous publication, and I was told that I could leaf through it, select my courses, map out my education for the next couple years, and I had done so diligently. And then I went into the registrar's office to sign up for classes, and I was told that I had to take a particular course with a particular professor during that first semester. And I was a little miffed. I didn't want to take that course during that semester with that professor. And so I protested a little, a lot, it just seemed unfair. But apparently the woman behind the desk had heard this argument from first year students quite often because she only half-heartedly listened to my plea and then without missing a beat, she leaned over the desk, took her glasses off of her face, looked me square in the eye and said, honey, I get it, but every incoming student has to take this class with this professor this semester. It's what we do. He's our hardest professor, it's our hardest course material, and we use this as a way to weed out the faint of heart. And then without missing another beat, she stuck her glasses back on her face, shoved the paperwork in front of me, handed a pen and said, if you're in, sign here. 
It was a reminder to me that in every difficult thing, there is a moment of reckoning, an instance when we have to decide what we will do. We can either stay in the grumbling or we can choose to move in a particular direction, a fork in the road, if you will. And I think that this is the decision that those following Jesus that day at Capernaum also had to make. Verse 66 tells us that after hearing Jesus' teaching and grumbling amongst themselves, many of those present turned away and no longer followed him. Truthfully, we have no idea how many in the crowd made that decision that day, but we do know it wasn't a small portion of a very large group of people. I'm guessing that for some of these, the offense would have just been too great. And we can relate, right? Eating flesh and drinking blood, not to mention Jesus' overt claims that he was the one sent by the Father. So deciding they just didn't want anything further to do with this, they might have simply slipped away quietly into the crowd, thinking no one would notice. There might have been another group who were initially a part of that crowd of grumblers, first trying to figure out what it was exactly that Jesus was teaching, but then having stuck around for a bit, they might have started to prod others to doubt what Jesus was saying and tried to get them to come away with them as well. This group moved from the day before having been all too willing to accept what Jesus was giving in its fullness to now being a group of skeptics who simply were unimpressed with Jesus' lack of additional tangible proof that he was who he claimed to be. Whatever the case, this group made the decision to turn away. And they weren't only turning away from this difficult teaching of Christ, they were turning away from Jesus himself. There was no middle way, no option to accept the part of the teaching that they liked but reject the other part of it. To take the bits of their grumbling and place them towards the difficulties that Jesus was professing, but stay close when his, his teaching and his ministry was more convenient and comfortable to them. They stepped away. We do that in a lot of different ways, I think, when we encounter difficulties with God. Sometimes we ignore certain scriptures that we don't understand or that seem to say something that doesn't jive with our perception of God. Other times we slowly back away from a situation that seems like it might require more than we really want to invest. And then sometimes we just quit the job or the relationship or the semester because this is just more than we bargained for. Please hear me out. There are certainly right and righteous reasons to step away from certain circumstances. But in this situation, it seemed that those following Jesus that day who decided to turn away really only had their inability to see beyond the physical realm as rationale for their departure. And so they left. But this, of course, isn't our only option when we face life dif life's difficulties. We also have the option to stay, to remain in the wrestling with the difficult thing. And I'm grateful that this is the decision that Peter and the other 11 disciples made in this scene. Staying required these 12 to accept the difficulties, whether or not they fully understand what stood, what Jesus was talking about. They had to trust in the one who was teaching the hard things and trust that in the right time, he would make them understand the kingdom of earth as it was in heaven. I don't think this was something that they had a ton of practice at doing. 
There are any number of times prior to this account in John where, where we read that the, the disciples professed their faith in Jesus. They proclaimed that he was the Messiah. But it's interesting to me as I looked at John chapters 1 through 5 this week, most of those professions of faith came only after Jesus had performed a miracle or a healing, something that he had done for them. And in this particular scenario, Jesus is calling his followers to a whole new level to step up their game. I feel like I can see this going down. Jesus is standing there. He has just taught this difficult thing. And now there's this mass exodus of people happening. And the disciples are standing off to the side, kind of watching this all wide-eyed, apprehensive, wondering how Jesus is going to respond to this mass exodus. And Jesus doesn't waste a second. He turns to the disciples and he calls the question saying, do you wish to leave also? These 12 were Jews too, you know. They had heard the same teachings of Christ. They had witnessed the same miracles. They had no more insight or understanding as to what on earth Jesus was talking about when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood than anybody else did in the crowd that day. And yet in this poignant moment, Peter sort of rises above the whole situation and says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. I read that response of Peter several times this week and asked myself, what on earth would cause him to respond in that way? And it's probably simplistic, but I wrestled the answer down to the word faith. Not faith that is past tense or stale or half-hearted, rooted only in yesterday and conditional upon what Jesus was or wasn't doing in that moment, but faith that is active, that said, we believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. In spite of our circumstances or our questions or our confusion, faith that empowered them to stay in the wrestling with the hard thing, recognizing that God is God no matter our level of confusion or hardship or disappointment or anything about our present situation. You see, true faith realizes that oftentimes understanding comes subsequent to belief itself rather than being built upon our own intellect and experience alone. Anselm of Canterbury asserted that faith not only welcomes the questions, but it also inspires and compels us to inquire more deeply into the difficult things, to continue in the journey, and to stay even when others turn away. I think that in this account, Peter models this kind of faith for us. It is faith that is seeking understanding rather than understanding which builds faith. And I think that kind of faith in and of itself is a very difficult thing. It's a choice. In the Greek, Peter's words are written in the present tense. They say we have entered a state of belief and knowledge that has continued to the present time, right now, today, even when we really have no idea what you're talking about and other people are leaving. I think their faith had been fortified by the disciples' relationship with Jesus up to that point. And it adds a level of beauty to the scene when we realize that in this moment, they are allowing that relationship with him to state, we will stay with you, even when others are being shackled by their inability to see beyond the physical realm, 
we choose to believe that you are who you say you are. Many of you are familiar with the story, I know, but I can think of no better illustration of this kind of faith than a writing of Henry Nouwen, who spent time with a group of trapeze artists known as the Flying Rodleys. Over time, uh, Nouwen got to know one of the pairs of the act. It was a flyer and a catcher. And he sat down with them after a performance one day to talk with them about how it all works. Rodley, the flyer, said to Nouwen, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. How does that work, Nowen asked. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I have to simply stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me up safely. You do nothing, Nowen said. Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I am not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's job to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrists, I might break them or he might break mine and that would be the end of us. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. Peter's statement of faith in John chapter 6 certainly didn't imply that Peter didn't have any questions or fears, and certainly these would come to light later in Peter's journey with Jesus. But in this instance, we see that Peter and the 11 disciples were willing to live with their questions and uncertainties because their faith was in who Jesus was, the Holy One of God, not in what he was or wasn't doing for them in that moment. And I think that is a difficult thing. To love and follow Christ even when we're unclear as to how he is active in our midst. To trust mid-flight when we are spinning out of control seemingly through the air facing life's difficulties that Christ awaits us with open arms ready to catch us and bring us in safely. We've all been there before, haven't we? For me, it was about 12 years ago when it seemed that suddenly the rug had been pulled out from underneath my family and I and the plans we were so sure God had ordained for our lives. And so as I worked my way through the grumbling stage and I attempted to position myself towards the future unknown, my mother introduced me to the works of early 20th century Bahamian Austrian poet Rainer Maria Rilke and a particular writing that reminded me that faith is not always the product of understanding, rather the path that so often leads us there. Have patience, Rilke wrote, with everything unresolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers, which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far into the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answers. So often, we seek understanding in an effort to grow our faith. 
And there's nothing wrong with that, but here Jesus reminds us that faith embraces the difficult things, the difficult teachings and circumstances. It stays in the journey even when we don't understand. And it welcomes the questions and believes that ultimately the answers to our questions will be revealed and our understanding will be found in God's perfect timing, whether that be in this life or in the life to come.